This is Just Punk Enough. I am your host, Andy Harrison. This is KMVC 95.1 FM, Carson City. Thank you so much for joining me. I interviewed Deke Dickerson for this episode, and it is super long. We're going into hour one and half of hour number two. Deke has gone way back in the music industry. He does everything DIY. He has worked with some of the greats. This guy's totally awesome. Enjoy my interview with Deke Dickerson, starting right now. Uh, where were you born? I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. And uh, lived there until I was eight. Uh, moved to Virginia for a couple of years, and then I, I call my hometown Columbia, Missouri, because that's really sort of where I came of age. Oh, okay. And did you, how, how did you kind of get into music? Were you from a musical family or? Well, my parents were not really into music, but uh, all of my grandparents and great grandparents, they were all hillbillies and played yeah. played instruments uh, back in the hills of Virginia where they came from. And, you know, as for me, it's funny because I was just retelling this story not too long ago. I was a really, uh-huh. really weird kid yeah. where I grew up at. <laughs> You know, I grew up in the 70s, and, you know, people think about the 70s being cool and all that. But, man, right. I'm telling you, man, when you were there, the 70s was all, like, Donny Osmond and uh, Sean Cassidy and Leif, yeah. Leif Garrett and, you know, the DeFranco family. Yeah. And it was just, like, all this, you know, like or, like, the Brady Bunch uh, musical hour, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, just just awful stuff, and and I hated it. Even <laughs> like my very first memories of you know my my people I knew that were my same age liking music of that era. I just yeah. I hated that music, yeah. and I remember you know this is I was probably like five or six years old when uh, Happy Days first came on the TV show, yeah. and the theme song for the first season or two was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and, and yeah. it just grabbed me. I was like, what is that? I like that. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, then it was several years later, you know, like there's goofy shows on TV like Sha Na Na and movies like uh, American Graffiti. I just got turned on to the whole 50s rock and roll thing. And yeah. And then when I got old enough to, you know, go buy my own records and and that sort of thing, I really got into all these different kind of things like country and blues and surf Uh and garage and punk rock and and uh, just kind of went from there, but you know the whole yeah. the whole fifties rock and roll thing, and just really hating seventies soft rock was uh, yeah. what started me down the path I, I'm on today. Do you remember um, like your first uh, live music experience, like seeing live music where it would kind of hitting you, and you were like, "Oh, this is kind of what I want to do." Well. So I remember seeing Chuck Berry on the Sha Na Na TV show. This was not a yep. live experience, but right. I remember seeing him on Sha Na Na, and they were, you know, as as goofy as that show was, they had some amazing guests on there. You know, yeah. they had Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and the Ramones and yeah. Ronnie Spector. It was like the first time I had ever seen any of these people was on that show. Yeah. And the first time that I saw Chuck Berry with his guitar doing the duck walk, I was like, <laughs> that... That that's what I want to do. How soon? Yeah. How soon until I can get a guitar? Because I have to do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's cool. But then you know, getting to the actual live music thing, 
Uh, I was really lucky to be in Columbia, Missouri. It's a college town, and mm -hmm. there's some really cool people there uh, that really encouraged, like, you know, young kids who wanted to get into stuff. And I was doing a radio show on this little community radio station that's still there called KOPN Radio. And oh, I was cool. 13 years old, you know. Yeah. And they would have all these flyers up in the radio station for all these musical events that were going on yeah. at this club called the Blue Note. Yeah. And this was when I was discovering all these things like blues and country and whatever else. Mm -hmm. And Willie Dixon was going to be appearing at the Blue Note. And I was like, what? Like the Willie Dixon? <laughs> like the guy that wrote all those songs and, you yeah. know, influenced Led Zeppelin, well, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So... Yeah. I was 13, and obviously this was a 21 and up club, mm -hmm. but uh, my dad actually approached Richard King, who owned the club, and said, you know, look, my son's really into music, and he really wants to see Willie Dixon. Uh, you know, is it possible yeah. if, if, I, if I just make sure he doesn't drink, like, can he go there and <laughs> see the show? And so Richard, you know, this, this was a long time ago, man. This is yeah. like the early 80s at this point. Yeah. And Richard was like, all right, just don't let him drink. So yeah. I went there, and I still have it frozen in my memory, man. It was like, dude, there's Willie Dixon, and he's like yeah. tw 12 feet away from me. That's and, you cool. know, he's, he's giant, and he's ancient, and he's black, and he's like the real deal, man. <laughs> yeah. He's like the guy that wrote all those songs. And that, yeah. uh, that literally just fried my mind. And, and yeah. from, from that point on, I, I just started going to every show that I could. And they kind of knew me there and let me yeah. in as long as I didn't drink. Right. And uh, it was a really, really great musical education growing up in that town. Yeah, that's cool. Were you playing guitar at this time? Yeah, I was playing guitar. I didn't have my first band until I was probably 14 or 15. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we started playing at the Blue Note, you know, opening up for people like the fabulous Thunderbirds and acts like oh, that cool. that would come through yeah. town. So was your first band Untamed Youth? No. When I was nope. when I was 14 or 15 years old, I had a succession of really terrible rockabilly bands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one one was called the the Rock and Tail Fins. One yeah. one was called Freddie and the Wingtips. Yeah. And you know it was trying to do rockabilly anywhere is difficult because you really yep. you really have to find like minded individuals and you have to find people that know how to play the you know upright yeah. bass and exactly that sort of thing. So at some point. When I was about 16 or 17, I started thinking, man, I should just form a garage band with guys that I go to high school with. Yeah. And uh, I had a really good buddy named Steve Mace. Uh, long story, but all these years later, now he's my stepbrother. He wasn't my stepbrother wow. back then, but now he is. Wow. Uh, and I started grooming Mace uh, because he played <laughs> bass. Uh, he played bass in a heavy metal band in town. And uh -huh. I was like, hey, man, I'm forming a band and, you know, we're going to make records and tour and stuff. And so he uh, he sort of got into this whole sort of 60s garage band thing that I was into. And yeah. then we got the this kid who was the number one chair in the jazz band on drums. You know, uh -huh. he was like this <laughs> super squeaky clean kid named Joel Trueblood. And uh, he was a great drummer, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he, he was... 15 or 16 and he looked like he was about 11 you know yeah <laughs> and uh so we started getting this band together and then uh 
that took maybe six, seven months before we finally came up with this whole concept of the untamed youth. a Farfisa organ, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, this was like before eBay, before the internet. It was like to find some weird <laughs> old piece of gear, like a yeah. Farfisa organ, was literally impossible. You know, we, yeah. we, we went to a couple of music stores in our hometown, and they're like, well, yeah, we've seen those old organs, but yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know where you would buy one. And, right. And so then we... Uh, I started looking in the classified ads, you know, in St. Louis and Kansas City. And yeah. there was a classified ad for a Farfisa organ for uh, $290, which was a lot of money for us at yeah. that time. I mean, that was yeah. like, you know, a month's wages probably. Yeah. Uh, and it was in St. Louis at this church. And so we drove up to St. Louis and, you know, it was like the middle of the week or something. And it was in the black part of town. Yeah. And we go into this church and man, it was like, <laughs> I still have this like imprinted in my mind <laughs> where we get led up this long stairwell and they're having like a, a rehearsal. And yeah. it's so funny because, you know, you watch movies now like Blues Brothers or whatever, and you think right. you think like this stuff is all made up. But right. I'm telling you, man, if you're putting <laughs> together a band in the Midwest, like you yeah. had these experiences all the time. <laughs> so we get up there and... This church is rocking out. They're practicing yeah. for Sunday. They're having their rehearsal. And we're watching like 20 people sing, and they got a full band, and this guy's yeah. playing the organ. And this guy, you know, there's a guy on playing drums, and he's amazing, and he's sitting on like six phone books. That's like his drum stool, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so finally they quit rehearsing, and, you know, here's a couple of teenage kids from Columbia, and, and the, and, we we asked the guy if he would take two hundred and seventy five dollars because that was all we could come up with. Yeah, and he's like, "Nope, two hundred and ninety dollars." <laughs> and meanwhile, there's like you know all these people that were just rehearsing, like watching this yeah. deal go down. And uh, finally, we're just like emptying our pockets. We had like you know sixty four cents and change, and yeah. and I think you know Mace maybe had like three dollars on him. And so finally, we came up with something that was like close to 280 like it was you yeah. know 279 dollars and 43 cents or something and, and we just like sat there looking at him for like five minutes it was like total <laughs> silence you know and then finally he's like just grabs the money and just walks off and we're like oh, I, I guess that means we can take the organ right <laughs> so so we took this organ um, back to columbia and we finally had our band together the untamed yeah. youth with our farfisa yeah. organ so were you like jamming in your bedroom all the time because untamed youth i mean you know even those early records at your age that's some pretty intricate guitar and i mean at least to me you know what i mean well i, I lived out in the country and mm -hmm. you know i had a couple of friends but it was kind of like a uh uh napoleon dynamite situation where you know right. i would have to walk like four miles to go hang out with one of my friends you know yeah wow. so i just spent a lot of time in my room just playing along to records and yeah you know luckily i had a great stack of hand-me-down records with all kinds of different stuff and i would just kind yeah. of play along and uh 
I, you know, I guess I got pretty good for my age, although I feel yeah. I sort of feel like I never got any better, like yeah, after, after the age of 19. But uh, <laughs> when you have that time, you know, like that's something yeah. that you don't really get when you're an adult is, you know, yeah. I wouldn't have time to sit in my room for five or six hours practicing guitar yeah. now. Yeah, I try to now, but the kids always interrupt and I'm always uh, watching YouTube instead or something. Exactly. <laughs> so how did you get like uh, record labels interested in Untamed Youth? So back then, again, this is like, you know, pre-internet, pre-everything. Yeah. Uh, there was a magazine called Kicks Magazine, and okay. it was run by a couple in New York City, Billy Miller and Miriam Lena. Mm -hmm. And this magazine, for me and a lot of other people all across the country, was like just this total eye-opener to this crazy world of obscure rock and roll and rockabilly and surf. Okay. And, you know, they just talked about all these obscure artists and all these records you never heard of. And everything yeah. was in like this tiny little eight-point type, you know, like classic yeah. old fanzine <laughs> kind of thing where right. you'd strain your eyes, you know. And I... I had three or four issues of this Kicks magazine, and I just read them and reread them and read them and reread them. And I, I finally wrote Billy and Miriam, and did a little article in Kicks magazine when I was uh -huh. fourteen or fifteen years old. Yeah. And so then, when I formed the band, they were starting this record label called Norton Records, and at that okay. time, they had only put out one record by a guy named Hassel Adkins, and I was like, man. We got to get on Norton Records. I got to figure out how to do this. Now, I guess I was about 16, maybe 16 and a half. I was, uh -huh. I was working at a local grocery store there in Columbia, Missouri. And at that time, Columbia was the only city in the state that had any kind of deposit law. Yeah. So you had to, you know, pay a nickel for cans and 10 cents for dimes or 10 cents for glass bottles. And when you brought them back to the store, then you'd get your money back. They were the only yeah. only city in the whole state that did that. So Pepsi had this contest where if you saved a thousand bottle caps, you could get a free round trip plane ticket anywhere in the United States. Oh, cool. So <laughs> I was constantly asking to go work in the bottle room. And every day I would leave there with like 30 or 40 Pepsi bottle caps yeah. stuff stuffed into my pockets, you know. <laughs> And so after a month or two, I had a thousand bottle caps and I sent, wow. it, sent them in and I'm like, I want to, I want a ticket to New York City. Yeah. And it, it's always so funny when I tell this story because it, it sounds like a Beverly Hillbillies episode, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. But so I, I went to New York City by myself. I'm 17 years old. My, <laughs> my parents are horrified. They're convinced yeah. I'm going to get slashed by a, you know, subway slasher. Mm -hmm. And I hang out with Billy Mir and Miriam, and they were super cool, uh, yeah. you know, really encouraging. And and uh, I kind of summoned up my courage, and I said, you know, this is a band I just put together. We're called the Untamed Youth. This is our demo tape. And and uh, you know, Billy was like, oh, we got to book some shows out here for you guys, and oh, cool. you know, we got to sign you guys to Norton Records. And uh, so we did a, a tour. I want to say it was the summer of '87, something like that. Mm. Yeah. And we were so young that my dad had to drive us out there. <laughs> wow. And we did three or four shows in the New York City area. And our, our first yeah. show was at a place called the Pyramid Club. Uh -huh. I, I want to say it was on the Lower East Side. 
And it was like a combination sort of punk rock venue slash uh, drag bar. Yeah. So like you know we go we we load in at like four in the afternoon, you know this is my dad I think his first time in New York City, <laughs> right? I had been to New York City once before but never to the Pyramid Club anyway. So yeah. we get to get there at like four in the afternoon and there's literally drag queens dancing on the bars, yeah. And my dad looks at me he's like I don't know what you got me into boy. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> And so we, you know, we did this show that night and, and that was when we sort of, you know, solidified this thing that we were going to make a record for Norton Records cool. and uh, that was kind of how it started. Was uh, like the recording experience, did it kind of blow your mind at the time being so young or? Well, you know, we actually had a recording studio in Columbia, Missouri and we okay. had done some demos there. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and then so you kind of knew what Yeah, but you knew I, what the studio I, was like. I didn't really like the way they sounded, so I went and did okay. some demos at the radio station that I did a show at. We like okay. loaded our gear in at 2 in the morning one night and yeah. cut these uh, demos and uh, I kind of love the way those sound because they're all distorted and overblown, yeah. you know, like that was yeah. what I was after. So when we went to New York City, you know, I listened to those records. And I'm like, well, I still don't like the way they're recorded, but it definitely captures the youthful excitement of what was going on. Yeah. And I guess I should back up a little bit, you know, since you're a punk rock uh, show. Billy Miller was sort of a guy who loved to turn people on to stuff, you know, uh -huh. and I, I can't even tell you the number of records that he has turned me on to. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, Billy passed away a few years ago. He, he got mm -hmm. cancer and he had several other health problems and he died. But I'm telling you, that guy was like a, a prophet to kids like me. Yeah. And, and he brought up this band called The Dictators. And I was yeah. like, well, I don't know, man. These guys look like a bunch of hippies <laughs> to me. Like, they got long hair. And, right. You know, I, it's not really my thing. He's like, no, yeah. you got to trust me on this. The Untamed Youth and the Dictators, you guys are like two peas in a pod. And so oh, wow. I got their album, uh, Go Girl Crazy, and I'm like, wow, you know, it's not really my style of music, but these yeah. these songs are great and hilarious lyrics, you know, just really, right. really great lyrics. Baby, baby, baby. said that he was going to have Andy Chernoff, the bass player and songwriter of The Dictators, uh, produce the Untamed Youth albums. And I yeah. thought, well, great. You know, he's like okay. a, he's a big music business guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> and that was a really good choice because uh, Andy and I hit it off right away. And we're uh -huh. definitely, he and I are definitely on the same wavelength, you know, of like, oh, cool. He was a band leader trying to keep a band together of, you know, right, completely different personalities and crazy people and sane people yeah. and all that. And I was doing the same thing. And uh, so Andy came in and produced those records and he he sort of understood exactly what to do. Like here is yeah. a teenage band from Missouri. Don't mess with them too much. Just record yeah. them as is. Try to get some material going in the right direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
those records are what they are. It's like yeah. uh, I look back on it now and I think, wow, that was pretty much the most non-commercial thing I could have chosen. Uh, yeah. You know, when I could have like, I, I think like, man, if I had just played my guitar through a Marshall stack, like yeah. we could have been the next Green Day or something. Right, but, right. But uh, no, we were the world's only surf band in 1987. Yeah. And <laughs> and then, then we had the, uh, the the smarts to break up in 1992 when uh, Pulp Fiction came out. And uh, <laughs> then there was all these surf yeah. bands around and we were, we were out of commission. That was my introduction to Dick Dale. Yeah, exactly. Kind of embarrassing to say, but it was. <laughs> no, man. Well, you know, that's it. It takes a movie like that to really sort of expose yeah. that stuff to so many people. And well, same thing happened with Social Distortion. You know, I wasn't really a country fan, and and Ring of Fire was playing, and my dad's like, "That's a Johnny Cash song," and then that just opened up my, you know, country life right there. So, yeah, totally. You know, has Abs to happen. Absolutely. So when you guys broke up, is this when you moved to L.A.? Well, so we toured and we made records for about three years, uh, but it was always a struggle with the band members. Like, yeah, guys would come, guys would go, you know, right. like nobody really wanted to commit because we weren't making any money. I mean, this is like, I mean, we were really living the punk rock lifestyle where yeah, we would play for sure. shows for... 50 or 75 bucks for the whole band, yeah. you know, maybe a hundred if we were lucky. Yeah. And, you know, you know, we would go in and buy like a can of SpaghettiOs for, you know, like the, oh, like the, like the generic SpaghettiOs yeah. and then like split that, you know, for a meal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember like going into, uh, pizza places and ordering like one slice of pizza and then like stealing pieces of pizza that people left behind and yeah, you know like man. like all that kind of stuff just yeah you know, so I can't really blame the guys who came and went yeah. in the band uh, but you know I had this vision and Mace was committed to this vision and so yeah. Mace and I moved out to Los Angeles in 1991 and the reason mm -hmm. that I moved out there was to keep the untamed youth going Right. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't really last any longer. It wasn't any easier uh, to find musicians in, in Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of officially broke up, I, I want to say, in 93. I, I got my dates wrong yeah. a little, little while ago. That was when Mace yeah. moved back to Missouri. But then, you know, we've been doing reunion shows since 1995. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I, I guess technically we're still a band if anybody wants yeah. to pay to have us play. <laughs> So what did you what did you do when you went down to L.A.? Well, like I said, I, we moved there and I wanted to get the Untamed Youth going. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, I still loved rockabilly and 50s rock and roll and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that scene was really happening in Southern right. California. And, you know, right. it still is. You know, it, it, yeah. it's it's sort of have it, had its... Uh, ebb and flow and ups and downs and all that yeah. but but rockabilly in southern california has just always been like a really big scene yeah and so uh we hooked up with this guy named dave stuckey and right. dave stuckey uh you know he was kind of like a billy miller type character on the west coast he was a guy that was into lots of different kinds of music and he seemed really cool and knew everybody yeah. and we actually wound up having him be the untamed youth drummer uh, until we broke up uh, okay. and Dave 
had a band at the time uh, called the Bird Dogs, who were sort of a rockabilly country type band. And I just wound up doing a lot of hanging out in that scene and worked at a club called the the Blue Saloon, which was in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And sort of that's where I got to know tons of people like... Big Sandy and the Flyright Trio that became yeah. Big Sandy and the Flyright Boys and yeah. James Entveld and Russell Scott and, uh, you know, just all these people that are a lot of whom are still around the day and are still my yeah. friends. So when the Untamed Youth thing fizzled out, uh, Dave and I had been playing as a hillbilly duo called Dave yeah. and Deke. And we had put put together this band called the Dave and Deke Combo. Yeah. And, I, you know, I guess we kind of started... In late 1991, uh, we would just go in and like sit in, do a couple of songs with Big Sandy and those guys backing us up mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. Do the back, do the back, do the back I even like to cigarettes sometimes. When it comes to dipping, I'll draw But then we started playing out and. Uh, when the Untamed Youth thing fizzled, uh, you know, the Dave and Deke combo thing really kept us busy. And, and we oh, just okay. played a lot. And uh, that really kind of got me back into the rockabilly scene where I sort of remain to this day. Yeah. Dave and Deke combo broke up in, I want to say, the fall of 96. And by 98, I was out touring with my next band, uh, Deke Dickerson and the Echophonics. Right, and I think that's when that's when I saw you open up for Mike Ness. That Mike Ness tour was uh, 1999, and you know, it, oh, okay, it uh, we 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 were a pretty new band. We had a brand new record on High Tone Records, and uh, man, I gotta say that tour won us so many fans that still come see me play today. It's crazy, yeah. I'm one of them for sure, and so was you know like five more of my friends because we're such Social D fans. Right on. But yeah, you guys like absolutely stole the show you know what i mean and i don't know it's it just has set with me ever since i try to see you every time now it's weird well i appreciate you saying i sound like a super fanboy, but whatever man i love watching you hey man Um, like i said i'm unemployed i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) so how did you get going with uh deke dickerson and the echo phonics i mean were the is that just a made-up name or were the echo phonics something already that you just grabbed or well the, the the actual name echophonic is a it's a very obscure type of tape echo that was used okay. on guitar back in the late 50s and early 60s gotcha uh, but funny enough when i first formed the band uh we called ourselves uh the deeks of hazard and <laughs> that's awesome it was a it was a funny name but man you know it was like yeah it just always got misspelled or yeah you know, no, people couldn't even figure out it was a band or whatever yeah so uh within a few months it became deke dickerson and the echo phonics yeah um and you know it, it was a it took me a while to get a band together but uh yeah. wound up getting this guy brent harding on bass uh-huh. who lived up in Ventura and we kind of knew him because he'd played uh, with a band called the Lucky Stars and a few other bands. And, you know, Brent's great bass player and, and sings great harmony and stuff. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you probably know this, Brent, after that Mike Ness tour, wound up 
playing with Mike Ness and eventually became the social distortion bass player, something yeah. that's uh, he's done for, man, a long time a long now. time, yeah. But, uh, you know, going back to the first version of the Echo Phonics, uh, brought over this drummer from England, this guy named Brian Neville. It's uh, still, uh -huh. still a good buddy of mine because yeah. he really wanted to move to America and tour with the band. Yeah. Uh, and he was just a great guy, just a really kind of like-minded individual. Yeah. Um, and then the very first version of the band, we had a guy named Johnny Noble playing second guitar, who was kind of mm -hmm. a young rockabilly kid in the scene. And the reason why I did that band or, you know, wanted to do it full time as a touring thing is within the space of like, I don't know, less than a year, I lost my job and my, yeah. my, uh, my wife and I split up. My, yeah. my parents got divorced. Uh, I got, oh, I got diagnosed with type one diabetes. Like, you know, it was basically just yeah. like, okay, here is a, a giant turd sandwich Jeez. from, from life. And yeah. so I was like, well, I'm unemployed, man. Let's yeah. do this. So I was like, I'm just going to go hit the road and, you know, maybe I can keep this professional musician thing going for five years, man. Like maybe yeah. I can get five years out of this with no day job. How cool would that be? Yeah. And, you know, now it's, you know, over 20 years. So that's crazy. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because, I mean, like I follow you on social media, you know, I, I, your politics are totally punk rock to me your your diy music career like there's, there's nothing more punk rock than that you know what i mean so well I, it's, I, uh, it's it's crazy and you know just getting back to that i should go back a little bit to when i was in missouri sure. uh because i played guitar and i had a band and basically the only other guys that i knew that played guitar were heavy metal guys or punk rock guys and i yeah. and I, I hung out with both of them you know yeah uh, but I, I spent a lot of time going to see punk rock bands back in the day. Mm -hmm. And if we can digress a little bit, I do have a hilarious story about sure. the one and only time that I ever got into a slam pit. <laughs> Please tell. So, like I said, you know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I started going to this local club all the time to see bands. And I saw... All kinds of bands, you know, like blues yeah. blues guys. And uh, I remember seeing, you know, Sonny Rollins, the jazz saxophone player, and, uh -huh. uh, you know, alternative rock bands. I remember seeing R.E.M. play there on like a oh, cool. Tuesday Tuesday night to like 35 people, you know. Crazy. Uh, but then they also brought in a lot of punk rock bands. Yeah. And I, I want to say it was 1985, but it was probably 1986. I went to go see Black Flag. And this was with, uh, you know, Henry Rollins singing. And the Blue Note had completely cleared out every chair and table. Like, it was just an empty room because they were afraid of, like, some sort of rock and roll, uh, you know, mayhem that might, might yeah. happen. So it's this big empty room. I can't remember what the opening band was, but basically everybody was kind of pressed against the back wall like you do when yeah. the opening band is playing. And Henry Rollins comes in and he, he watches the opening band for 30 seconds. And then he just changes into his shorts, like right there in the middle of the dance floor. Like he's just butt naked in the middle of the dance floor. And, and, and I remember, I, you know, I was whatever, 15 or something. I remember thinking like, man, I wish I could do that. <laughs> so then 
Black Flag starts playing, man, you know, they were intense, man, especially yeah. like in a small club that's just packed. Yeah. And I guess I must have been 16 because I was driving, just yeah. just barely driving, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> so I'm seeing everybody do this slam pit. And I think, well, I guess I should do that. Right. And so I got in there and like within literally like within 1.2 seconds, this guy just <laughs> fuck. I, so I'm, I'm almost cursed. This guy yeah. just smashed me right in the head. And yeah. when he did that, one of my contact lenses went flying out of my oh, eye. And so if you can imagine this. I'm like trying to stop people. Hey, wait, there's a contact lens on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, you know, there's it's a, I'm in the middle of a slam pit at a yeah. at a black flag concert. Oh, and and you know, I try looking for my contact and everybody's just knocking me over and yeah. I'm in the slam pit for literally less than like 30 seconds and I get out of the slam pit and I've only got one contact lens. I don't have my glasses. And so yeah. I, I got to drive home, like just putting my hand over my right eye, so that uh, you know I can still see out of the left eye. But that that um, was that was like the nerdiest uh, yeah experience of being in a slam pit ever. But it was yeah, actually awesome. it was actually to see Black Flag in 1986. Yeah, that's cool. So your first Deke uh, uh, record was number one hit record, right? Well, I had actually started my own record label, putting uh -huh. out 45s in 94, something like that. And what was I, the name of that label? Echophonic Records. Oh, okay. And uh, I had put out a bunch of sort of like guitar instrumental records, and I, I don't know, I'd probably put out a half a dozen singles, but it wasn't really like with a band or anything. It was just, I just wanted to put out some cool singles. Yeah. Were you recording that stuff yourself, or were you going to studios? So getting back to Big Sandy and the Flyride Trio, who became yep. Big Sandy and the Flyride Boys, uh -huh. uh, the bass player of that band, a guy named Wally Hersom, he, mm -hmm. he was like the first guy I ever met who had a vintage-style recording studio. Oh, cool. And, you know, this is, again, it's like back in the old-school days yeah. where he had stumbled across the stuff at some, you know, estate sale, and then he like learned how to work on all of it and rebuild it himself, and wow. and it was all just mono. Like you had to you yeah. had to perform everything live, and it had to be mixed on the spot. There was no yeah. no overdubbing, no multiple tracks, no nothing. It was like a real '50s style recording studio. Yeah. Uh, but I loved it, you know, because it like for the very first time. When I went in there, it was like, yes, that's what I want my records to sound like, you know? Oh, cool. Up to yeah. that point, I'd never really liked how any of them were produced or anything. Yeah. So I did all those singles at Wally's studio, and the Untamed Youth recorded there, too. Yeah. Uh, when the Echophonics got signed to High Tone Records, um, I knew that, you know, just for their... They always wanted stuff to be kind of radio-friendly, yeah. And I didn't really want it to sound like modern or polished or anything, but I knew yeah. I knew that it had to be like better than just mono done live, no overdubs, whatever. Right. So we went to go see this guy Mark Neal down in San Diego, and you know Mark's a guy used to have a band called the Unknowns who were on Sire Records, and um, he was another guy that was kind of a vintage recording guy back when yeah. nobody else was really into vintage recording stuff. Right. And we wound up doing, man, the first 
four Echophonic records uh, were all done at Mark Neal's studio. Mexicali Rose, please stop your crying. Well, I'm coming back again some sunny day. You know, dear, every hour I'm piling. worked well together and I'm, I'm really happy with the way that those records sound yeah yeah they're cool um so uh were you building your own studio at this time or have you just been doing that your whole life or well because i know so, you got a lot of vintage gear and, yeah and stuff like that and so you know i don't know uh, when, when that obsession started yeah so to answer your question <laughs> i you know, if I wanted to record at Wally's place, it was like a total hassle because he lived way down yeah. in Orange County. And, right. you know, I, I obviously I had to pay him to do it. I had yeah. to, like, pay the musicians to do it. Yeah. Um, and when we went to Mark Neal's, obviously we paid him and, you know, he cost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, so at some point I started just kind of collecting microphones, like just a, yeah. just a couple of mics here and there. It was back really before eBay or when eBay was just yeah. getting started. And you could still find stuff at swap meets and that kind of thing and music yeah. stores. And so I had a few mics and I remember I bought a little four channel Ampex tube mixer and I started doing some of my own recording. And I, yeah. lis I listen to that stuff now. It's like, wow, this stuff sounds really terrible. But yeah, you have to you have to you have to experiment, you know, you have to yeah, work on totally. it and do it. And so. Probably by 2004 or 2005, I, I had a pretty good pile of equipment and microphones, and I felt pretty confident with it. And, and I started recording stuff in my little tiny house in Burbank, and yeah. I must have recorded, geez, man, 15 or 20 albums there and probably, yeah. probably 20 singles, not not just for myself, but for other bands. And Yeah, yeah. And some of that stuff sounds really good. You know, I was just yeah. list, listening to this uh, steel guitar record that I did there uh, by a guy named Jeremy Wakefield. And uh -huh. it's called Steel Guitar Caviar. And, you know, it was just a group of musicians uh, gathered around each other in the living room and playing at a low volume. And I'm like, man, that record sounds really, really yeah. good. Yeah, cool. So it was, yeah, it was they... kind, of, kind of during that time that I, I just did a whole lot of hands-on experience with it. Yeah. I know that the uh, my buddies Franks and Deans that record sounds really good too. Yeah, man, I love those guys, and I was I yeah. was so happy that they came here to record with me. Oh, I was so jealous when they told me, and I'm like, "What? He does that?" I was like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> well, and, so, you know, over the years, it's like uh, I'm kind of astounded at uh, the number of different acts that that I have recorded. You know, like no, yeah. nothing that's been a big hit or anything, but right, man, it's just a ton of stuff. Yeah. It's it's a, a huge accomplishment. Not not I mean even your own career, let alone who you're recording too. You know, I mean it's it's a lot of stuff. So, uh, the Go Nuts was that uh, during this time in the, um, the Echophonics time? Actually, much earlier than that. Uh, oh, okay. If you want to go back to when uh, the Untamed Youth was kind of fizzling out and Mace moved yeah. back to Missouri. Uh, during that time, I had befriended a band from San Francisco called the Phantom Surfers. Yeah, and, okay. you know, again, they were real like-minded individuals. We yeah. we liked a lot of the same stuff, and, <clears throat> you know, we both of 
that band and and my band, we just had a wicked sense of humor and and yeah. I just remember uh, hanging out with those guys and just laughing so much all the time. Yeah. So when the Untamed Youth was kind of fizzling out, I I want to say that the Phantom Surfers were also just taking a bit of time off, and so right. Mel Bergman, who's one of the guitar players in the Phantom Surfers. He lived down in Southern California, and he and I started talking about putting a band together. And we were like, you know, look, man, we've been in surf bands, and yeah. there's, there's not really any commercial uh, potential with that. Let's do something where we can make some money. I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> let's do this. And so we came up with the concept of the Go Nuts, which was basically a band devised to get our own Saturday morning cartoon show. Right. And the idea was is like a superhero band that sang songs all about snack foods and yeah. how much we hated healthy foods. Yeah. And we figured that, you know, the commercial possibilities for this was unlimited. Stupid songs like uh, Robert Earl Hughes about the world's fattest man who was buried in a piano crate. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we started out with surfy reverby guitars, but yeah. it didn't take very long before we realized, like, man, this just needs to be a full on heavy metal, uh, high concept rock band. Yeah. And so the Go Nuts, man, we. I, it, it evolved very quickly. Like, okay, we're going to sing songs about snack foods. Yeah. Why, do, why don't we have a, a thing like a, a catapult that will put snacks out in the audience? Okay, that's a good idea. Well, <laughs> like a year and a half later, we've got this full-blown front line of air-powered snack cannons yeah. and, you know, like uh, snack blowers, and we've got guys in gorilla suits who were like you know throwing 50 pound bags of cheetos and doritos yeah. and powdered sugar into these snack cannons and <laughs> and so we became pretty infamous for yeah. just destroying clubs yeah. and uh so you know by the time that our records came out it was really hard for us to get a gig yeah and uh you know i remember our last few shows uh, up in the San Francisco area, we're playing at these clubs that were literally like slated for demolition, you know, like, oh, yeah. uh, well, that place is going to be, <laughs> they're going to be leveled in two months. So let's yeah. book the Go Nuts. That's awesome. But uh, we, you know, the Go Nuts actually had a couple of meetings with uh, CN, uh, I want, I was just about CAA, the Creative Artist Agency, uh -huh. who at the time were like the biggest, you know, artist rep in, in Los Angeles. They had this yeah. office in Beverly Hills. And that was kind of my first taste of the music business where, oh, okay. or not the music business, but the, the entertainment business where yeah. they wanted us very, very briefly. And yeah. we went up there and they're like schmoozing us and telling us mm -hmm. how we're going to get a primetime show, not a Saturday morning show and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then like almost instantly we became persona non grata. And it was like, yeah. well, that's over. Yeah. Uh, so we never we never got our TV show, uh, but then one of the bands that saw us play 
uh, became the Aquabot, Aquabats. I don't know if you know yeah. who they are. And Oh, uh, I do. And, I love that band. And so, you know, for better or for worse, the Aquabats basically just completely stole the GoNuts uh, template and oh, uh, and achieved, you know, quite a bit of success with it. And, and you know, good for them, man. Yeah, that's one of my favorite bands. <laughs> Well, I seen you guys were on Planet Pimp Records and Lookout Records. I mean, Lookout is huge in my life. Yeah. So, that I was, mean, that's so punk rock to me. And that was an interesting experience, you know, because uh we we made this record for Lookout and I thought it was really good. Yeah. Uh, but it was just kind of one of those records that was like impossible to market you know what i mean like yeah it was just it was a little too goofy for the punk rock crowd and it was a little too punk rock for the you know kids crowd yeah uh so you know the the lookout thing was interesting uh oh i'm remembering a really good story actually yeah so yeah we thought lookout might be our ticket to success right yeah and you know obviously they had bands like green day and whatever for sure so the Go Nuts agreed to play this benefit show in San Francisco for, yeah. for Lookout Records. And, oh, my God. We played at this club called Slim's. Yeah, no Slim's. We set off our powdered sugar and... Oh, man. The guy at the club went crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> he literally went insane and threw, uh, like, threw us out. And yeah. made this huge stink about how he was going to have to take apart the mixing board and take apart all the oh, speakers <laughs> and take apart all the monitors and clean all the microphones. And and so basically he like charged Lookout $4,000, which took uh, away all the money that they had made for their benefit show. Oh. Uh, so we instantly became persona non grata with the Lookout Records. Oh, man. Yeah. And, and that was that. <laughs> that's awesome can you tell me about uh blind rage and violence sure well you know i i've always loved having side projects like the go nuts yeah. and um i i really think that tribute bands are like the goofiest thing you can possibly do with your time yeah but but i also thought hey it's a fun idea let's just do tribute bands of stuff that doesn't really ever get a tribute band done for it so right uh blind rage and violence was my concept of a link ray tribute band <laughs> pretty high concept where we're going to wear executioner's hoods right. and you know like the lead guy is supposed to be blind that's why his name is blind rage <laughs> gotcha. and uh you know it's just one of these things that just went way over most people's heads like yeah you know to me if you're wearing a black hood that's an executioner's hood right yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell you the number of people that when we come in, you know, if they see a album cover or if we come into a bar with a black hood on, they say, "Oh, you guys are Klansmen." 
Like, yeah. No. 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 Klansmen no. wear white hoods. We yeah, are not exactly. wearing white hoods. We are executioners. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's 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 been a fun band to uh, just completely uh, do some in completely crazy stuff. You know, like yeah. one of the last shows that Blind Rage and Violence did in Spain. Uh, they put us on during the day at this stage that was right on the the, the beach. You know, like yeah. they built a, a stage on the stand. Yeah. And so we did our set, and we end the set I think with Rumble. I can't remember. Uh-huh. And I get on the dance floor with my guitar, and I strike this E chord, and I just let it feed back, and I lay the guitar down on the ground, and then I just jump in the ocean and just swim yeah. away. <laughs> and then, then like the rest of the band just like sees what I'm doing and puts down their instruments and just jump in the ocean and swim yeah. away. And everybody's like, well, are they coming back? <laughs> and, you know, we just hear this guitar just like shrieking feedback for 15 minutes. And oh, gosh. So, you know, it's fun to do stuff like that. You don't get to do that stuff like that every day. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you end up working with the Trashmen? So I'm trying to think where where I first really met those guys. Um, I first saw them play at a festival called the, uh, the Las Vegas, uh, it wasn't the shakedown. It was the Las Vegas grind festival. And, um, you know, at the time they just kind of got their autographs, whatever, but I got to meet them. And then several years later, I crossed paths with them at the, uh, Ponderosa stomp festival in new Orleans Uh and somewhere else too. I can't remember. And I, suggested to them like hey uh could i get you guys to come out and play my guitar geek festival this is a thing thing that i was doing in anaheim at the time Uh and so i flew the trash man out and and i before they came out i said look i really 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 want to sing surfing bird with you guys (laughs) and they're like nope nobody gets to sing surfing bird (laughs) and i'm like Uh please I'm 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 making this part of the contract that I have to sing Surfing Bird with the Trash Men, and they're like, nope, nope, nobody is allowed to sing Surfing Bird with the Trash Men. And you know, on top of that, they said no one has ever sung Surfing Bird as a guest with the Trash Men in the entire yeah. you know fifty plus year history of the band. No one has yeah. ever done that. And so I was like, look, I'm paying you guys. I'm the I'm the MC of the show. I really want to insist on this. So basically it came down to, they came out to Anaheim and they, they said that they would give me a, a trial, you know, like a, right. a, a tryout. So at the sound check that day, I did it. And I guess I did it well enough that they allowed me to do it at the show that night. Yeah. And it was, it was such a blast. I mean, I, I just love yeah. that band. They're literally one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, and I just kind of threw out there like, "Hey, man, you guys haven't made a new record in a really long time. Do you want to make a new record together?" And they said yes. to Minnesota and uh, the first thing we did was a little four song seven inch EP and that turned out really well and I flew out again and we did some more recordings and made a whole yeah. album 
And uh, I think that record turned out great. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a Trashman fan, yeah, but, for sure. but for me, it's like, wow, that record, it just, you know, there's something about those guys, their chemistry, and Tony, obviously, is an amazing lead guitar player. Uh-huh. Uh, they just, man, they're just really, really a great band. Uh, yeah. So th- that's, quite honestly, that's one of my proudest accomplishments, was getting to do some new recordings and get to play some shows with the Trashmen. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, that's huge. That's huge to me, too. I got that album. I had you sign it when I saw you in Reno. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so how did you get into, like, scoring movies and stuff like that? Because I saw that you did the Wild Whites of West Virginia, and then you did the Johnny Knoxville Action Point. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of the main reasons why I continue to live in Los Angeles is because yeah. that's that's where all this stuff happens. And, yeah. and you know, it, it used to be, going back to the 80s and 90s, like you would actually make money selling records because people yeah. actually wanted to buy records and CDs yep. and you would get royalties and, and everything. But then that really just kind of stopped, you know, once, yeah. once uh, MP3s and streaming and all that. Yeah. So... Getting songs in movies and TV is really the only thing that pays any real money anymore. Yeah. And the first thing that I ever did, there was a guy, and I, he's still a friend of mine, a guy named Dondi Bastone, who mm-hmm. was a music supervisor, and he was kind of getting a lot of songs from people in the rockabilly scene in various movies and TV shows. Yeah. And he got me hooked up with uh, the director. I want to say his name is David Payne, but I might be getting that wrong. Yeah. He's one of the Payne brothers. Uh, a movie called Election with uh, Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. Oh, yeah. yeah, I know. And it was basically one of these things where they wanted to get a Les Paul and Mary Ford song called Bye Bye Blues. Uh-huh. And when they tried to license it, they were given a quote of like $100,000. And, uh, and they said, okay, we'll go out and find somebody that can make a sound-alike uh, record, you know. And yeah. I've done a bunch of things like this where they, they call you up and say, well, we can't afford this song, so can you write something that is really similar and then yeah. do a recording that sounds really similar? Uh, okay. And so that was the very first thing I did was uh, this song for the movie Election. And uh, That's cool. I, I told you earlier about my first second guitar player. His name was Johnny Noble. He had a, uh-huh. a, a sister named Megan Ivy, and uh, she had done some singing with the Brian Setzer Orchestra and stuff. And yeah. So I asked her to come in and do the Mary Ford part. So we had this one song that sounds like Les Paul and Mary Ford that's in the middle of that movie. And Awesome. And, you know, I got this nice check, and I went out and I bought a 1979 <laughs> Cadillac Coupe de Ville because... <laughs> I'm a hillbilly, and you know, right. like that's how you def- <laughs> define success. Yeah. And uh, and sort of slowly but surely, uh, these things have come in, and you know, it's it's sort of a word of mouth thing, especially yeah. if you if you're known for doing a certain kind of thing. Like I guess I'm I'm sort of known for being the guy that can make these vintage sounds come alive. And yeah, uh, Johnny Knoxville has definitely been the the greatest uh, benefactor for me over the years. He's yeah. hired me to do a whole bunch of things for this documentary that you mentioned, The Wild and Wonderful mm-hmm. Whites of West Virginia. And then yeah. I had a, had a song in Jackass 3, and oh, cool. I did uh, half a dozen songs for this movie he did with Jackie Chan. And uh, at one point, he was going to have a ABC TV series that was kind of like a uh, Johnny Knoxville as a young kid kind of 
sit, yeah. sitcom and I did all the music for that, even though it never yeah. got picked up. And, uh, and then most recently I did 17 songs in this movie that he had out a couple years ago called action point. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's, these things are really the things that have kept me going over the years because they've been yeah. good, good paychecks. And then whenever those things get played on uh, cable TV or whatever, you get yeah. residual royalties for them. So yeah, uh, that's, that's really been the best part for me about staying in Los Angeles. Yeah. That's awesome. How did uh, the, the writing start? Like, I know you got a couple of books and you write articles for guitar magazine and well, you know. you know, when I was in Columbia, Missouri, uh, after I graduated, you know, they have a, a university there. And my folks were like, hey, uh, you know, you, you're going to college. What are you going to study? I'm like, oh, well, uh, uh, <laughs> well, the University of Missouri has the best journalism school in the country. So <laughs> I will study journalism. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I didn't graduate college. I went for a year and a half before I moved yeah. out to California. But, you know, that yeah. was that was my thing was I was going to be in journalism. Yeah. And it's just kind of something that uh, that I took to. I just started writing, uh, doing some liner notes and things like that. And yeah, uh, eventually was able to do writing for all the guitar magazines and uh, did a couple of books about finding vintage guitars out in the wild. And yeah. then uh, most recently, I just finished a biography about this guy, Merle Travis, who was mm -hmm. a famous uh, guitarist and songwriter and singer back in back in the olden days. Yeah. And that's going to come out this year uh, from a company called BMG Books. So it's just kind of been cool. another, you know, it's like a, a side band, except this is like a, a side career, you know? Yeah. I mean... You do so much stuff, man. I don't know how you have time for it. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. You remember how I said I wanted to be my own boss and uh, not yeah. have a, not have a day job? Yeah. Well, when you start doing that, like none nothing pays any money, so you have right. to do like you know ten yeah. times uh, the amount of work to just like make a normal <laughs> wage. Yeah. So uh, so. You know, it keeps you on your toes, though. It's like between yeah. playing music and doing writing and doing all these other uh, recording and producing projects. I've yeah. man managed to keep the bills paid, but yeah. you you can't really ever like rest on your you know your laurels yeah. or just take right. a take take a vacation or anything. You got to right. keep keep working. So you're um, every year you do three shows at the Viva Las Vegas, right? Yep. Because I I've only seen the Hillbilly Fest and that was the year that uh, Stray Cats played and and I had wanted to go for years but I I finally saw uh, the last night the Hillbilly Fest and it was one of the best shows that I've ever seen it was like a breath of fresh air just oh, excellent being able to hang out and be goofy and just and I was you know super impressed like you're, you're picking up the stand up bass you're jumping on guitar like you're all over the place man how hard is it to kind of plan those three shows you know there's so much intertwining of stuff so you know the the promoter of viva las vegas this guy tom ingram uh mm -hmm. he he and i go way back and he's hired deke and the Echophonics many many times yeah um uh, and i guess it was i don't know seven or eight years ago i i pitched to him like hey you know why don't I start doing a guitar geek show at, at Las Vegas? Yeah. And he liked that idea, so we started doing that. And um, and then I pitched to him this idea of doing a Hillbilly Fest show with Dave and Deke Combo, and he liked yeah. that idea. 
And I think from the third show that you're talking about, I I didn't do it last time, but I I was doing a thing like a rhythm and blues review, and that uh-huh. was that was another thing that I pitched to him and. Yeah. You know, it's a ton of work, and I'm definitely not going to Viva Las Vegas to just like hang out and drink beer and you know, <laughs> right? Hit, uh, you know, talk yeah. to people at the bar. But yeah. uh, but you know, once you have the basic sort of framework in place, it's like anything else. Like, okay, yeah. hillbilly fest. We're gonna have bales of hay, and we're gonna have girls and hillbillies like sitting on the bales of hay clapping and we're going to have a couple hillbillies across the front of the stage sleeping and we're going to have an out outhouse on stage right and then we're just going to have you know some various acts come up and do uh some hillbilly songs and david d combo will play a little set and uh if we're lucky we can get a a headliner like we had doug kershaw one year which Uh was amazing and yeah uh so yeah that, that definitely a ton of work to produce but uh at at the same time super fun yeah well i noticed that um when you get uh you know a guest or something that you can always do backups you know what i mean like you can have a backing band or something like that is that something that you guys discuss like hey just come out we'll do these songs and i'll get you a backing band or i'll be part of that backing band well, sometimes people show up with their own band, you know, like yeah. when I do the Guitar Geek show, I'll often have like 15 guitar players on there. And yeah. Most of them will show up with their own band, okay. but if they need a band, then I'll play bass and I'll get a drummer or, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll figure out some way to, to, to back them up. And that's another thing that I've done a ton of over the years is I backed up a lot of the old 50s and 60s artists at different yeah. festivals. And, you know, it's, it's another one of these things where if you, if you do it enough, you just kind of become, uh, able to do it very easily, you yeah. know, yeah. uh, especially when it just comes to following people. And it's, it's amazing to me how many people play music and play in bands and they literally like don't watch for visual cues or they don't hear, yeah. they don't hear these little musical cues that are coming up and uh, you know again if you if you've done it a million times then it comes like second nature to you yeah well because i know like when you you played at the pepper mill uh hot august nights years ago and i saw you and you just you said that you had these two guys just come out and and uh as your backing band and you guys nailed everything and i've been playing music for my whole life you know and i can't there's no way i could go in and be like oh you know we're in this key and you know, just keep it going. Because to me, it's like kind of like jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you guys are just... I, can, I can tell you if I said that we just got on stage without rehearsing that I was just lying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, right, I do yeah. I do remember that gig and I think we rehearsed, uh, you know, at least at least a couple of times. Oh, you know? OK, <laughs> I gotcha. Because, I gotcha. yeah, if I get on stage with with guys that I have never played with ever in my life, then, yeah. you know, it, it's not going to be that good. Uh, you oh, know, gotcha. But uh, but you know that being said, if you're playing with with really good musicians, like I said, you can you can follow along and you can listen yeah. to each other and you can like watch each other for visual cues yeah. and and uh, guys that are really good at that can easily play a set worth of material with just kind of even one small rehearsal before that or maybe even yeah. just make making a few notes, you know? Yeah. So what are are you doing now? You're doing Deke Dickerson and the Whippersnappers, right? 
So yeah, uh, I formed the Whippersnappers almost two years ago uh, to mm-hmm. the day. Uh, I got one of those reminders on Facebook from the, the yeah. very, very first post yeah. that I did about it. Right. And, you know, like I said, the Echophonics was a band that I had for a long time as a regular band. And sort of like the Untamed Youth, it became very difficult to keep musicians in the band. And especially like, okay, I have a five-week tour booked with all these shows yeah. It's really hard to find guys that are free and don't have day jobs or whatever to like go out and do a five week long tour. And so I just thought to myself, man, what I really need to do is put together a band with some young guys, you know? Yeah. And there was a a guy that I've known around town since he was 16 years old, this guy named Bert Avalos. And he has his own band called The Centuries and he plays with a couple other bands around town. Really good guitar player and really nice guy. And I I approached Bert about this idea I had and he said, yeah, I know the perfect bass player too. And and he uh, tipped me off to this guy, Xander Griffith. Mm -hmm. And both of them are are really sharp guys, really good musicians. And and yeah, man, they're young. They have energy and and they really want to do things. And so... It, it's not like a struggle to uh, to get them to rehearse because they actually yeah. want to rehearse. And, yeah. and uh, so it's been fun for me. And uh, what's really sad is that, uh, you know, we had just started getting all these festivals booked. Like we were going to yeah. go over and play this, you know, Rockabilly Rave Festival in England and do all these other festivals this year uh, or last year, 2020, when yeah. the, the COVID hang- thing hit. And we've actually been able to do three or four shows uh, at this outdoor club in Orange County Uh uh, called Campus Jacks. And we're getting ready to play there again uh, in February. uh, Yeah, at the end of this month. Yeah. But uh, just been a drag. Like we kind of got the band going and we got an EP EP out. And then it's like, oh, man, everything shut down. Yeah. I follow you on social media and, you know, your adventures that you go on. I... I love them, man, because you are so into stuff, you know, like the record stores you go to and and just the sites you visit. It's just uh, I, I tell people all the time, like if you want some entertainment, follow Deke on social media, man. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate your time, man. I, I'm uh, surprised that you even said yes. I, I, I say that to everybody, but it blows my mind who is willing to talk to me. And uh, I, I absolutely enjoyed it, man. Well, that's a funny thing, you know, because I, I used to have the same thing when I would go to see bands play at the yeah. Blue, Blue Note in Columbia, Missouri, because yeah. like I would go buy a record by a band like the Blasters. And yeah. in my mind, like, man, these guys are on Slash Records. They've got like three <laughs> right. or four albums out. These guys are like the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. And then, you know, you'd show up in the afternoon when they were doing their sound check and you could just yeah. hang, hang out with them, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it always kind of blows my mind. But it's one of the yeah. things I like about the music business as opposed to like, you know, the acting business or something like that is everybody's yeah. still pr- pretty accessible. Yeah, and I think like the whole punk rock community and not you know non top forty bands, most people are in the same boat as you and I, and they they love talking to people. You know what I mean? They just don't have big heads. Is is what I've found out. You know? Yeah. Well, and and definitely you know going back to when I used to go see those punk rock bands, that was a major thing. Was 
those guys never had any kind of like star attitude, you know, right. the punk rock guys, they'd probably like wind up crashing at your house. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah and totally. uh, I don't know how many of those guys like Mike Watt or, uh, you yeah. know, just various guys like that, that we would just hang with. And yeah. it, it's kind of amazing, but that's just the way it was. Yeah. Well, Deke, I hope that uh, once COVID passes, that you can get back to doing what you're doing. I hope you can uh, make it through this, and uh, I hope you know people buy your books and records. And I tell people that we need to buy music to help you know artists that do this for a living right now. You know. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, people don't really realize how what a terrible, terrible deal the whole streaming thing is. Like. Yeah, uh, you know, I, not from their end. It's a great yeah. deal. Like pay pay ten bucks yeah. a month, and and then nobody yeah. gets any money on the other end. But uh, yeah, yeah, myself and a lot of bands have really taken a big hit. Like we used to sell a lot more merch on on yeah. tour, and now people are like, well, I don't need to own that CD. I can just stream it. But uh, right, I it's it's terrible. I, I tell people like, well, if you're streaming my music. Really, what you should do is buy my CD and then throw it away. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I try to buy something if for from bands that I really like. That's why, I mean, I collect vinyl, so I'm always looking for for records. I try to do that because I know it, it helps a little bit, but you know, there's not enough people doing that, so it, it kind of scares me that you know the art arts are going to go away. But I, I don't think they're going to go away. But I don't know. It's a struggle. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you, like, I've been sort of watching it get uh, smaller and smaller from like when I first started in the 80s. You know, when I, yeah. when I think about back then, people used to go out and see live music like every night of the week, you know, and if you had yeah. a, a big band come to town, they would play like three or four nights in a row and it would be packed every single yeah. night. And over the years, I've just kind of watched that get smaller and smaller. And there's definitely a, a desire for live music. And I think yeah. that'll always be there. But what you really run into, the problem is, is that you have to have a certain threshold to actually make a living at it. Yes. And if you can't at least like pay your bills and keep your rent paid and all that, then you don't have any more professional musicians. And then it yeah. just becomes like some weird kind of uh amateur cosplay kind of sure. thing you know what i mean yeah, no kidding yeah. so uh I, I think it's important that people support it with their their wallets like you say and and yeah. buy stuff from bands whenever they see them and just go yeah. out to go out to see shows when things open up again yeah yeah i think people will be uh antsy to do that so well, you know, a bunch of us are really hoping that uh, this will be like the new Roaring Twenties. So we'll just... I, I hope so, too. <laughs> we'll see how that uh, plays uh, out. Uh, yeah. Well, Deke, I appreciate you talking to me. You got it, man. There it is, man. Deke Dickerson, I cannot tell you how awesome it was to get him on the show i've been a fan for so long and uh he's just i don't know likable guy follow him on uh, social media follow his adventures he is so full of knowledge about music and uh i just look up to this dude and i was very honored that he would even agree to talk to me and uh 
Yeah, man, that episode is awesome. Uh, it originally came out February 13th, 2021. Go to JustPunkEnough.com to listen to tunes and stuff with it. And uh, yeah, there you have it, man. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Deke. You are one of the coolest dudes ever. 